This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that are still happening today. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back to Ospol Snackpod, the podcast that is kind of like a marinara sub, long and salty. That's right, we are the podcast that brings you bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics, a side of crispy memes, and we are also the official podcast, the Ospol Shitposting Facebook group, and uh, we took a week off. Yeah. So we're back in the hot seat. It was delightful. Yeah, it was nice to not have to read the news <laughs> for, yep. for a few days, yep. I'll be honest. Yep. Um, my name is Zach Snack, and uh, that was my co-host who you just heard. It's me, Noon. Hey, welcome back, everyone. I hope you also enjoyed our week off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. And of course, this week, uh, the biggest news on everybody's lips mm-hmm. um, is that Tony Abbott has a new podcast. Yeah. Um, what's it? I don't have it, have it up here. Is it called Australia's Heartland? I haven't looked into it. Uh, we were thinking for a bonus episode this month, we might, uh, you know, react to it. Uh, so I've decided to try and learn as little about it as possible for maximum okay, shock and in- horror. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good plan. Well, it's, it's an IPA operation. Mm. Uh, it's a pickle boy project. Is it um, fucking, and- uh, James Bolt? Because I know he no. stopped doing that other one, but he was like, oh, I've got other things in the works. Don't you worry, listeners. And, you know, well, of course I This is what I, it, why I wanted to bring it up, because James Bolt, a.k.a. Andrew Bolt Jr., yeah. used to run the the IPA, the Young IPA podcast. Yeah. But they are, we obviously drummed them out of town when we That's started right. our podcast. And we you know, very similar demographic them. that we're appealing to, you know, hard exactly. conservatives. We, uh, yeah, I mean, we successfully basically, you know, effectively beat the shit out of them in podcasting yeah. terms. Yeah. Uh, and Tony, I would just like to say, I know you're a listener, I know you're a fan. Welcome to the fucking Thunderdome. You're entering a world of pain. We are going to destroy you. Okay? I can get you a so, toe. <laughs> with nail polish. Thank you very much also to our new patron, Nick. Thanks very much for signing up. And thank you also to Oscar. Thank you, guys. Who increased their pledge. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, if you want to support us financially, you can do so over on Patreon for uh, as little as $1 a month. It gets you a monthly bonus episode, plus other cool stuff at high levels as well. Um, and I guess before we get into it as well, you know, this has been a really rough couple of fucking weeks. I mean, yeah. that's why we took a yeah we took a breather last weekend, like when we went back into lockdown again. I think it hit us both pretty mm. hard, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm i not so stressed about the lockdown, but I just got my vaccine the day before, and the side effects were really doing a number on me. Uh, it was <laughs> Including intense. some new and exotic side effects that I hadn't seen in the news. <laughs> As a connoisseur of... Uh, side you effects? Know, well, no, just illness in general. Medication? You know. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. Um, this was truly an exquisite... Uh, <laughs> flu-like <laughs> symptom yeah um but uh it was amazing it switched on 24 hours well no it was less it was like yeah 12 hours after i got my shot and at 8 p.m i was just like ow did a truck just run me over because what the fuck and then 24 hours later at like 8 p.m the next day i was like oh i'm in so much pain i'm just oh 
that's finished. Good. <laughs> just switched yeah, off again. No, that's but, just your body like adjusting to the microchip. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, it'll be smooth sailing from here on out because they'll just turn down your pain receptors. So beautiful. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, just would like to send our love and support to everybody else who's in lockdown, yeah. especially in New South Wales, where things are you know getting exponentially more fucked. I mean, today's announcement uh, day of recording. We're recording on Saturday is uh, really rough, over 400 mm. new cases, mm. four more deaths, um, you know, and they've just announced that they're sending out more cops and more army into the streets. So, like... Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's it's a pretty fucking rough situation. I think we can all Yeah, agree. absolutely. Um, but, Noom, why don't we get into our entree story for this week? Yeah. Oh, well, this isn't a rough story at all. Um, oh, the A new uh, IPCC report came out, which is the International Planet... Uh, panel on climate change um and these reports the only planet we have is the, the international, yeah, international planet yeah uh <laughs> this report is always really boring if you already believe in human caused climate change because mm. really the only thing that they change is the very specific terms that they use to signal to other scientists how sure they are about different things. So mm. basically all of them have said the same thing. And like, that's not quite true. There's definitely modeling about, you know, projected emission timelines and whatever that do get changed and updated and new science and so on. So there is like new information in it, but like a lot of it, if you just read the report is saying like, I'll read you this bit and I'll pick out some of these key phrases. So it is virtually certain that the global upper ocean has warmed since the 1970s and extremely likely, which is obviously much less likely than virtually certain, but still extremely <laughs> likely, that human influence is the main driver. It is virtually certain that human-caused CO2 emissions are the main driver of current global acidification of the ocean. There is high confidence, that's another step down, that oxygen mm. levels have dropped in many ocean regions since the mid-20th century, and medium confidence that human influence contributed to this drop so dead fucking boring they're just being like okay we're now more sure about this fact and slightly less mm. sure about this fact um but really yeah, what th this this report every time is just basically every climate scientist in the world all the best climate research being yeah, like yeah. compiled by essentially the most like conservative scientific organization you can possibly imagine that's right that's a really crucial like, thing about it is that it's also guys, a political organization but yes yeah. mm. And the fact that they are like, okay, this is really, 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 really bad. We can't stress enough. <laughs> it's without, very bad. <laughs> that it's very, very bad. And that's the, what the report has says has said, you know, yeah, in all yeah. six iterations, essentially. Yeah, and um, all of them say the same things that we already know. We need to move away from fossil fuels and towards reforestation and drawdown. And like it's just, we've known since like the 1970s how to stop climate change and it's mm. still the same things that we need to do that this ipcc yep. report has been like we still need to do that um so how did australia respond to this <laughs> uh basically scott morrison was like uh yep g'day uh we're better than everyone else in the entire world at absolutely everything <laughs> uh we believe in technology not taxes bye like i that's or, like he's like we've got one of my favorite bits on this show that I do repeatedly is I wish that was an exaggeration but it's not um but yeah he was like we're doing better than anyone else at solo we're doing better than anyone else at all of this other stuff no one can even fucking talk to us about 
reduction in coal mining in the last three decades or like all, no. and all of these things that are like technically vaguely true that he has done nothing whatsoever to help and a lot to hinder. Yeah. Um, yes. And no, that he's that's, using that's as an crucial. excuse not to do more. Yes, totally. There's also a couple of things that I'd like to point out about his response. Yes. One was that immediately he was like, well, two thirds of all emissions are coming from developing countries. So uh-huh. it's their fault. Yep. Also it's China's fault. Yep. Uh, which by the way, I mean, we'll get into we'll talk a little bit more about China's emissions targets in uh, in the next segment. Uh, but also, technology, not taxes. Okay, mm, a mm. who's proposing a tax, Scott? Because it's not you, and it's not, it's the, not Labor the Labor Party. Party. Yeah, but I it's so fucking tax, Tony Abbott. And also, I think about this all the time. Tony Abbott smugly saying in Parliament to Julia Gillard, "If you want to reduce carbon emissions, why not use a simple tax?" And it's so fucking true. It is the liberal mechanism for changing people's behavior is a tax it's Mm -hmm. like it's the single thing that aligns with their ideology to deal with any literally any problem and (laughs) the like if you think about what tony abbott actually put in instead of a simple tax he put in the fucking i've forgotten what it was called but it was like a a couple billion dollars that they paid to companies to reduce their thing. That's the least fucking liberal way. That's like centrally planned economy, yeah. like South Korea style early industrial development kind of thing. Like, uh... okay, sorry, that's fine. It's I shouldn't expect <laughs> them to say what they or do what they believe. But anyway, no, or believe what they say or yes. do what they say yes because none of those things. you know <laughs> we need to wait for the technology no no no. we've got the technology <laughs> and this one particularly stings because people in on an individual basis yes. are using the technology yes. such as solar panels uh-huh but, hmm, i have a what is the australian government doing about this <laughs> yeah well <laughs> absolutely great question um yeah surely they're doing something to encourage the uptake of solar power surely yeah if they were gonna take credit for it surely they're <laughs> they must <laughs> be doing something positively yeah. so well to be honest i'm not actually sure how much the government has influenced this particular decision okay. I-, I would say they have probably been heavily involved but I-, I i'm not certain about that because it's come from aemo the australian energy market operator and they have changed their rules, effective from 2025, so we've got a couple of years before this kicks into place. Just enough time to ruin the industry. Um, so <laughs> power companies will now be able to charge people who sell them solar power. So currently the way, way it works is if you have solar panels on your roof, you're generating excess power, you can feed in your power back to the electricity grid, and then it gets used by other consumers. And this gets paid for what would called feed-in tariffs. So that's just like you get paid a certain number of cents per watt that you generate or kilowatt or whatever. I don't know how it works exactly, but yep. yeah. You get paid for power that you produce on your property with your solar power. Exactly, yeah. And apparently this is causing strain on the grid, uh, which was not meant to be multi-directional. Uh, I could believe that. We do have an atrociously bad power network <laughs> and it causes bushfires constantly um, blackouts all the fucking time just all yes. the fucking time yeah um so i could believe that but i'm not actually sure it's people selling solar power that's really the problem but again i, I i'm not an engineer i don't know but now amo said that people can charge sorry amo says the power companies can charge people with solar panels a fee before they buy their solar power so you now have to pay this 
the power company for the right to sell them your power. Um, which there's a social equity argument that has been going around, which is that it's going to reduce the cost of the average household's power bill by a whopping $15 a year. Um, because something, something, the cheap power, the solar power will be cheaper. Um, um, it seems like that's total bullshit and <laughs> that it's pretty obviously a cash grab by power companies who are having their racket horned in on by civilians with solar panels. Um, that's a pretty brazen misdirect. Oh yeah. $15 like, we're a charging, year. We're charging people money for renewable energy. Because it's going to make it cheaper for the average consumer. Guys, yeah. we're on your side here. Mm-hmm. And Famously. like, it's, I, I don't know. One of the, the reason that solar is going to replace coal is that the marginal cost of production, the amount it costs to make each next bit of power is essentially zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having a large distributed network of people supplying zero cost power is like ruining the business model of, power companies that own power plants um yes. so yeah yep yeah there's a, there are quite a few like sort of business newspaper articles going around at the mm-hmm. moment being like there's a problem with solar power it's fucking up the market because it's so cheap and good yeah like, oh no <laughs> seems to me like one of them good problems but yep. anyway <laughs> all right <laughs> why don't we move on zach to Shitpost of the week. And we're going to stick with um, the people actively destroying our planet and our future um, Mm -hmm. for this story as well. This week, Shitpost of the week is going to uh, noted shitposter Matt Canavan. Um, And I will give also a a little uh, (laughs) whoop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's hard to do that um, questioningly (laughs) or unsurely. Offer the, uh, the the layup assist to Liam JB from the Ospol Shipposting Facebook group for sharing some of Canavan's best work uh-huh. into Ospol Shipposting. Um, so Canavan is a is a real like he's a troll. He's one of mm-hmm. kind of the biggest um, social media posters and trolls uh, in the National Party. I mean, you know, he can't doesn't hold a candle to the likes of the Joyces uh, and the Barilaros. No, I mean, or are they not neither trolls? Joyce nor Barilaro were particularly. Um, big the- posters. I'm talking about uh, Craig Kelly. Yeah, who obviously, sure, sure, you know, sure, he's an sure. independent now, not a liberal. But also George Christensen is a yep. big poster. Yep. Um, and so he's not quite on their level, but like he, you know, for a guy who doesn't look, and I don't know how old Matt Canavan is, but he doesn't look like he's over fifty. Mm. He his boomer poster energy is extraordinarily strong. Uh, and this is this first one that you picked out, Noon is. Mm. Really, the epitome of boom and posting, which is posting a screenshot of a newspaper cartoon. Um, wow! You know, which... Putting me on blast like that. <laughs> I mean, look, you've done it before. I'm, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I have. It's, it's, I'm comfortable with my of, life choices. Of boomer, boomer flavored posts in the past, and uh, but uh, I mean, this one, yeah, it, it, and it's, also it's awful. Along with this cartoon, which I'm sure you'll describe in a sec, Canavan's caption is. Spot on space. Yeah. Dot dot Again. dot. <laughs> I get a huge boomer in it. Yeah, yeah. Which explains why he's got you know gets the traction that he does. Um, yeah, it's a terrible political cartoon of uh, the e the leader of the EU, and then got Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau, and uh, Boris Johnson, and they're all punching themselves in the face 
quite well, sitting at a table that's, really. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of it's upsetting. Labeled, um, net zero by 2050. And uh, a reporter is asking them, why aren't China and India on board? And Boris Johnson says, they're not as sophisticated as we are. So, you know, you get a nice little little racism to help the climate mm-hmm. denialism go down, mm-hmm. um, which is, yeah, <laughs> real classic uh, national posting hours. Uh, one thing I would like to say about this just off top is that China actually does have a net zero target that they've committed to. Mm-hmm. It's not 2050, it's 2060. Sure. But Matt, you'll note that Australia doesn't have one at all. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. whose fucking fault is that, Matt? Okay. Could it be Minister of Resources Matt Canavan's fault? Well, he's not... Oh, no the, longer. He's No, not anymore. Okay. Um, he stepped down I mean, to back but uh, it Barnaby was, Joyce. It, he has been responsible for this, though. Like, I think oh, he's a big contributor no, Matt, to the fact that we don't have this target. But A hundred percent. And the fact that he's talking about, oh, India and China are so bad. Right, right. Like, literally, when he was Resources Minister, he was enthusiastically encouraging... That's right. Australia to export more coal to both China and India. That's right. I and remember I we reported a... on some of his super cooked stuff that he said about how like coal was going to like save people's lives in India and so and, and yes, a bunch of lots lots of that kind of bullshit rhetoric. And yeah, I found um, a press release from his website from 2009, the title of which: India, our next coal hotspot. So, in answer to the, re- the question being asked by the cartoon reporter in the Boomer post that you posted, mm-hmm. Matt, mm-hmm. why aren't China and India on board? Well, A, they China definitely are. is more than us, and yep. B, they're burning out coal, you fucking piece mm-hmm. of shit. Um, <laughs> he also posted uh, uh, this other extremely Boomer um, oh, yeah. meme, which is... Oh, uh, oh, I haven't seen this one. So, this is a yeah. this is like a, a, a photo of a a steak on a frying pan or no it's a lamb chop bad at meat it's a steak it's a steak it's okay, a t-bone yeah. steak oh it's a steak it's famously the little i can bone see it right there it's shaped like, like a tea. tea yeah 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 um that's uh, actually i don't know if you know noon that's where it gets its name from <laughs> interesting there you go um I thought it came from a T-bone cow. But yeah okay so on the left it says dinner tonight and there's this juicy looking steak with seasoning on it and stuff and it's been and nothing else i would point it's, out it's just a steak it's just a steak with like a sprig of rosemary on it yeah but it looks like appealing food and then on the other side it says dinner under net zero dot 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 and it's just the i believe it's called the t-bone <laughs> with none of the meat on it there's just a tiny little bit of gristle uh it's been very badly photoshopped uh, yeah, the the Photoshop job on this, like, it's it's very very unlikely that Matt Canavan. Oh, of course, I'm sure he Photoshop, stole this. Yeah, yeah. But it wouldn't surprise. Like the the low quality of the Photoshop does suggest that it could. Have it's been a noon level by edit. a politician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Because and the caption was something like uh, IPCC says that we need to reduce meat consumption, red meat consumption, to 14 grams a day, um, in order to uh, attain, you know. In order to meet our targets. Um, and, like, yeah, we do need to massively reduce industrial animal agriculture, agriculture yeah. specifically cattle production, mm-hmm. because it is just so, so bad for the environment. And, of course, this is the level on which someone like Matt Canavan communicates, right? There's nothing about 
you know, there's no understanding of the responsibility you might have to other people. Mm, there's mm-hmm. like, you know, no sense of kind of, of solidarity. You're, you're happy to scapegoat people in developing nations, you know, but at the same time, uh, sell them coal and then accuse them of like being the reason being that climate change is happening. Sophisticated and yeah, whatever. And likewise, yeah. the like the only possible negative impact that you can picture is like on at this personal level. Like I won't be able to eat a steak if we reduce climate change. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people aren't going to be eating steaks for too many more generations at the rate we're going if we don't change. Right, it. right, right. So and look, I I don't. It's probably not an important point, but like 14 grams on average, that's like a steak once a week, you know, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. That's still some meat, you know, are you that, having a steak literally every day? I, I That might be a problem for other reasons. Anyway, yeah, that's fine. We don't need real... to get into dietary advice. We don't know shit. I don't know shit about it, but yeah. <laughs> it's just a really, it's a primo example of the, like... Yeah, the way that the uh, that climate denialists communicate on this yeah. stuff—that it's all about, you know, <clears throat> it's all about how it's going to personally, very, very mildly inconvenience you if we do anything about the climate. And I think once again, this is an example of political enthusiasm being built by enjoying getting mad, and that it's fun to be a giant dick and to demand that you can eat as much steak and nothing else other than steak on the Jordan Peterson diet as you want just to trigger the libs or whatever. And like, yeah, it's, it's, that's kind of Van's approach to politics, but I think it's effective and the left should think about how we can connect with people on a level of enjoyability as well as just being like, well, actually it's really, you're not going to be able to eat steaks anyway. So or, yeah, yeah, like, those are all logical arguments, which is well and good for the people listening to this show already, but, like, there's nothing fun about pointing out that the meme doesn't accurately represent the data in the IPCC report or whatever. No, and that, that's why people who don't give a fuck about anybody except themselves are able to be really effective mm. political communicators, mm. unfortunately. Mm. Um, and, like, just to drive that point home, in case anybody's not aware, Matt Canavan does have a personal financial interest in fossil fuels like his brother is a fossil fuel executive bunch of shady shit going on there in fact well his his company went under though um so i don't know exactly what's happening there but uh like you know matt and his brother and his uh sister-in-law are like yeah they're invested in the fucking industry Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and just the, the final point that uh i'd like to make on this is that you know the National Party is supposed to be the party that represents people in the regions, supposed to represent farmers and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, like, by refusing to reduce emissions from fossil fuels, what the coalition is doing is basically mm-hmm. guaranteeing mm-hmm. that those reductions that we are still trying to make are going to have to come from elsewhere. And largely, that's going to be the moment, agriculture sections. Yes, a lot is coming from uh, basically not letting people clear land. And, like, in my opinion, that's good. We should be radically reimagining our food system so that we're not clearing huge amounts of land sure. for the steak that you so desperately want to clog your fucking colon with, Canavan. But, you know, his specific opposition to, like, reducing mining companies' profits actually does have a direct, negative terrible negative effect on farmers yeah. who yeah. he's yeah. supposed to be representing. Yeah, so, I mean, his proclaimed constituents, yeah. 
yeah, that who who he who he claims to represent. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, and like I guess the the thing to remember here is that like climate change is this big scary thing. Massive system change is required to do it, but also there are certain individuals who bear a huge amount of responsibility mm-hmm. for here in, in Australia, our inability to take action on that. And most of those people at the moment uh, on balance are in the National Party, and Matthew Canavan is among them. And he just has, like, so much pain and misery and suffering on his conscience, this guy. Like, he just deserves to be ripped apart by the public in the street, from wow. my perspective. Sort like, of an end-of-perfume kind of a situation. I haven't seen it, but... Uh, I haven't. You should read it. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, cool. Well, thanks for taking us through that horrible story, Zach. Um, I think we now have a say what you will about Pauline. Cory Bernardi's right about this. You know, one. you have to hand it to ISIS. I don't normally agree with Channel Seven. Yeah, so just a cheeky little broken clock here. Uh, just a quick one about world-leading conspiracy nerd George Christensen, who uh, we mentioned before as being one of Australia's foremost conservative trolls. Um, he had a little rant in Parliament this week in which he said that uh, masks and lockdowns aren't effective in managing COVID spread, which is not true. And the doctors were basically lying to everyone because they're dictators. Uh, this isn't the broken clock, sorry, just to be just to be clear, listeners, that's not the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Finally, somebody's speaking <clears throat> the truth! That's right. Thank you, George! Uh, yeah. Um, so... Anthony Albanese, uh, leader of the Labour Party, brought a motion to Parliament that was basically censuring him. So, uh, that quote, um, This House condemns the comments of the member of Dawson, which is George Christensen, prior to question time, designed to use our national parliament to spread misinformation and undermine the actions of Australians to defeat COVID. Also not the broken clock. Uh, the broken clock comes <laughs> because it was this motion from Anthony Albanese was supported by Scott Morrison and other members of the Liberals and Nationals. And in fact, no one voted against this motion and no one spoke in favour of George Christensen. The, the unfortunate thing and the thing about being a broken clock is that, you know, they are right twice a day, but only for one minute. Um, and, uh, that is accurate because they, all, all of these liberals and nationals and Scott Morrison immediately refused to actually stand up to him in any respect other than having voted for that bill. Uh, and so to finish this up, I'm just going to read a slightly long excerpt from an article by Catherine Murphy in the Guardian, but I think it's, um, uh, telling of how absolutely fucking useless our parliamentarians are. So. The deputy prime minister told the ABC on Thursday he had different. Sorry, this is uh, yeah, uh, Barnaby Joyce. He had different views to Christensen and had expressed them to the member for Dawson through continual discussions. But he said, "You don't start telling another adult what to do, particularly an adult who could imperil the government's majority in the House of Representatives. What people want me to do is order him, and you can't do that to another member of Parliament because it doesn't work like that." Joyce said. Other people have their own minds. You might disagree with their views, and I disagree with some of George's. But I'm not going to start ordering people around. They're adults. You're an adult, and you can make your own choice. When it was pointed out to Joyce that he was the leader of the National Party, and MPs were routinely asked to toe the line on issues, Joyce said Christensen had been elected, quote, by the people of Dawson. They are the ultimate authority. And I know how George's mind works. This is the important bit. If you start prodding the bear, you're going to make the situation worse for us as a government, not better. And I'll say to that to my colleagues, I can assure you that when you've got a thin margin, don't start giving reasons for a by-election. Asked whether he was seriously arguing Christensen should not be rebuked for contradicting health advice during a pandemic because of the delicate numbers in the House of Representatives, 
Joyce replied, that's dead right. Um, so just so shamelessly self-serving as they like uncover. So just to be clear, you're refusing to be responsible because it might make you not be in power anymore. Is that right? And he's like, yes, you yes. understood correctly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, shout out to your favorite shows at the party room. Um, they pointed out this week that like, if they do this with George, that means literally every backbencher in parliament or in the liberal national party can now do and say anything they want with no chance of getting in trouble. And like, we already kind of knew that. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, it's not going to make a, a particularly marked change in the way that the coalition operates. No, but it's just significantly more overt and disappointing in this case, where they're like, yeah, that's right. We disagree. We officially censure him. But, uh, you know, what you going to do, hey? <laughs> it's just a pandemic, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, so it is, anyway. It is, it's brazen. Yeah. All right, that's it. What do we got next, Zach? Hey man, I got some more beers. Oh, I don't know if I can drink anymore. I'm feeling kind of sick. Now come on, we're having another round of Coronas. Just going to talk a little bit about JobKeeper, what's happening up, what's happening with that uh, business this week, because there's been some conversation around it. So, yeah, I mean, essentially, the the TLDR of this story is, uh, well, profitable companies are keeping millions of dollars in government money. Centrelink is issuing debt notices to individual recipients. Um, so, cool. that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I mean, it's very business as usual type stuff. It right? is. So, um, eleven thousand welfare recipients who receive JobKeeper have been issued with a total of thirty-two million dollars in debt notices. What the fuck? Because wait, yes, how many people? Eleven thousand. What the fuck? Thirty-two million. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> That's awful. Yeah. Um, this is because, according to Services Australia, which is the government department in charge of welfare. These welfare recipients didn't report JobKeeper as income, which would have lowered the amount of income support that they were entitled to. Um, so, you know, they were getting whatever it might be, uh, youth allowance or, or job seeker, and then didn't report JobKeeper. That's fucking incredible, and- making it like, we're, we've got files on you, and we can see that you haven't linked these two files. And that's your yes. fault. Not no, it is, and that's us that has. And that's the, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's the, that's their official line. They're like, I know. We yeah. Have always said, and it has always been the case that it is your responsibility to report your income and blah blah blah. And you know, it's obviously fucking. It's just confusing. A, an excuse to find people. Like it's just there yes. to stop people getting access to welfare. Yeah. And you know, JobKeeper was kind of notoriously very messy. Yeah. A messy scheme in general. Difficult to use and confusing, and to quote, quote um, Green Senator Rachel Seward, I'm certain that the vast majority of these so-called debts will be genuine mistakes in a confusing system. Yep. Um, yeah. And by the way, shout-outs to Rachel Seward. She's leaving Parliament next She's month. She's resigned, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that's a shame. She's really cool. But um, I don't know much about who they're bringing in to replace her, but uh, she also seemed cool. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Good Yeah, so, I mean, this, you know... Um, chasing people for disaster payment support money while the pandemic is still going on. And like, you know, specifically welfare recipients, like this sucks in and of itself. But it stings particularly given that billions in JobKeeper went to companies that 
stayed totally profitable during the pandemic. The famous example being uh, Harvey Norman, which we spoke about on this show, uh, with Jerry Harvey himself. Yeah, that's what I remember, yeah. uh, Increasing his net worth by $7 million last year. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, Labour MP um, Andrew Lee, who he represents uh, the electorate of Fenner in the the ACT, he's been making a lot of hay out of this. He estimates that around $13 billion of JobKeeper went to companies that didn't Mm -hmm. need it. Mm and I'm, I might come back to that in a sec. Um, but before I, I chat about that further, I wanted to talk a little bit about Rex Patrick, who mm-hmm. uh, was formerly of Center Alliance, formerly of Nick Xenophon team, and now of the Rex Patrick team, Great. which is but, yeah. very funny. That is funny. Uh, I don't know if you guys know about Rex Patrick. He's a senator. He's a big submarine guy. He made his name doing um, submarine shit. There's 14 instances of the word submarine on his Wikipedia page, not including footnotes. Well, wow. Like, I'm just telling wow. you this That's casually. a lot of submarining going on. He made... Look, I'm telling you, or... he, made his, he, was, he was in the Navy. He made his name there doing submarine shit. Then he made his name in politics talking about submarines. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Nick Xenophon used to apparently call him Inspector Rex, which is... Uh, that's cute. He should use yeah, that in I his mean, advertising material. <laughs> according to Rex Patrick, when I take on an issue, I am a little bit like a dog with a bone. A, a detective dog. A dog uh, with I a ham tra- sandwich, dude. Have, come on. <laughs> have you not seen Inspector Rex? Watch the show. Yeah. Uh, I have a track record of delving into issues and finding the details, often in areas where perhaps the government doesn't want me to find the details. And you know exactly what area he's talking about. Is it? Underwater. Submarines? <laughs> the submarine environment? All secrets under the surface of the sea, and I'm going to get them, just like a dog with a ham sandwich. Yeah, so he loves doing freedom of information requests, and, you know, he's, he's big into transparency, and, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I mean, Go water is transparent, so that yeah, it's, well, checks out. Depends how deep you're going, nerd. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying this extended summary riff. This is good. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean it. was just like, I it's meant to. I, just, I was like, I'm going to get a little bit of background on this guy. And then I was like, wow. Oh, the whole background he is literally, He literally showed up to Parliament wearing a giant foam submarine. Like, <laughs> wow. How did they miss yeah. look that up? That's amazing. It's a, go to our Twitter. I posted it just the other day. Um, anyway, so Rex Patrick, who's wow. <laughs> yeah, yep. independent senator, he wants to make public the list of companies that got JobSeeker and how much they got and how much they've paid back. Okay. So he initially tried to do this via an amendment to the recent bill that provided like disaster payment support for the local government areas that were in lockdown in Sydney. Um, and he had support from Labour and the Greens and One Nation on this bill but then the liberals opposed it and labor backed off because they wouldn't didn't want to slow down the arrival of that uh you know the, the support financial yep. support for people in lockdown which like okay sure fair mm-hmm. enough anyway now he's moved a motion which always makes me think of taking a shit um, when i see that in political reporting which has been passed by the senate um with labor support so you mm-hmm. know it's due and this is going this is basically instructing the tax office to reveal this information uh about companies who got job seeker 
who have turnovers of over $10 million. Right. And the head of the ATO has responded being like, nah, that's going to breach privacy and tax secrecy obligations. So sorry, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. Patrick has, has responded by saying, that's bullshit because this is just about where public money is going, right, not right. companies like Business Info or whatever. Sure. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to make this public. And it's been frequently pointed out by both Rex Patrick and like most of the reporting around this points out that they have uh, in New Zealand a publicly searchable register for the businesses that receive their equivalent of JobKeeper, which right, seems right. pretty cool to me. Like you can literally look up the company that you work for and be like did they get job keeper how much did they get how much have they paid back of it mm-hmm. um so you know it's it's been it's been it's very easily doable thing totally um so you know which like transparency is good uh especially around this stuff you know definitely in support of that but i you know this a lot of a lot of sort of discussion around uh, all this JobKeeper money that went to companies that didn't need it, and now we got to get it back. There's all this kind of political sort of capital being expended on that, particularly by labor. And I kind of question whether it's like a good political goal. And I'd mm. be interested to hear your thoughts on that, Noon, mm. because like, I guess, yeah, I, I question the wisdom of, of labor making a big deal out of this because, yeah, it was a mess, but. Like JobKeeper was a mess, but it did keep millions of people afloat last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And in general, you know, I want to be massively encouraging the government to be quickly responding to big crises right, like right. this by shooting a whole bunch of money at people who need it. Totally. And you know, it was kind of a mess because it had to get put together very quickly. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, I wonder if a better, sure. better, better, better political use of this would be to demonstrate that financial support should go directly to the people who need it not through Their companies because it's not places yeah 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 exactly like if you're talking about oh some people got job keeper and didn't report it on an individual level and the government's like yeah okay this like you're less than 40 million dollars or whatever which like a bunch of it's probably done by mistake anyway mm-hmm. versus like 13 billion dollars in job keeper that went to companies that were like oh yeah we are totally gonna lose money we're, we're gonna lose so much money yeah, yeah. we have a couple hundred mil like yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Maybe, sure. maybe that, that maybe that would make be a better use of. Um, well, yeah, I think there's a couple ammunition. of different issues there. So, like, one is what actions do the Labour Party take to incentivize the Liberal Party to behave well, right? So that's kind of what you're saying. Like, if they don't criticize this, is that going to encourage the Liberal Party to? be more willing to spend money when it's necessary? And I think the answer is no. Um, I don't think what the Labour Party really does does really affect the Liberal Party very much at all, except if the Labour Party proposes a useful suggestion, in which case the Liberal Party absolutely won't adopt it. Which isn't to say the Labour Party shouldn't make useful suggestions. They kind of, like, that's mm. not a fair conclusion to draw there. But I'm not sure that uh, your point about what's this incentivizing the government to do, I'm not sure that really applies. So that's one thing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's partially what the impact on the Liberal Party is, but also partially what the public conversation about this becomes, right? Sure, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. sure, we could do JobKeeper again, but look how Remember much money got wasted last well, time. Well, okay, so, so that's another issue is, like, is this going to affect what they do? And I think the answer to that is also no. And I've reluctantly, a few times through the pandemic, said that I think that the Labour Party would have done a miles better job because they are willing to spend money when it's necessary. And, like, yeah. the global financial crisis is a good example of that. And them trying to encourage job seeker to be better during the pandemic is also part of that. I mean, they didn't do a great job of it. As you say, they, you know, or well, this was, uh, yeah, they failed to support bills at certain times and they failed to push things when they could have, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think that, I don't know. I don't think that this would be like offshore detention, for example, where the labor party has created something to try to, sort of steal votes away from the Liberal Party and then it's completely yeah. run away and dominated the conversation. I don't think a pandemic welfare response critique is like that. So I don't think it will create a structural thing. But uh, it could be wrong. But the other thing is like, yeah, is it a useful way for them to try to get votes for the next election? And I'm not sure it is. I can see why they might think it is like, oh, these big businesses are stealing money that should be in your pockets and they get punished but you don't and we won't be like that we'll make sure we look out for you and not for jerry norman or whatever jerry harvey um <laughs> but again that's not really actually what the labor party does or what their brand is or who they're going to attract to vote for them because they're also right-wing capitalists who are in, mainly in favor of business and only secondarily mm. in favor of people so yeah, yeah, I'm. I think it might be unwise on that level that they're actually, like, <laughs> they're not radical enough to make this critique. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's also you've touched on this idea of look at all this money that the government has given to corporations, and uh -huh. you know, that's money out of your pocket. Which, I mean, that's just not how it works at yeah. all. Like. Uh -huh. The $89 billion that the government spent on JobKeeper, they spent it into existence for that program. Right. They didn't take it from other places. And I, I wonder if instead of being like, oh, look, the, you know, look how terrible it is the government is spending money on, you know, these uh, businesses who don't need it, which like, they just, they do that shit all the fucking time mm -hmm. <laughs> as well. It's not like a yes. new thing with JobKeeper. Right. Um, but it's, you know, instead of being like, look, at, the government literally could spend this amount of yeah, money yeah, whenever they choose to. And uh, and they're not doing it, but they're demonstrating that they could give it to anybody at any time that they yep. please. Um, you know, I, no, I, I totally, think the, I think that's the conversation a more around critique. like, yeah, but the, the like comparison to, and then look how hard they go after individuals yeah. who may have accidentally gotten a little bit more pandemic financial support right, right. than they were legally entitled to versus like, oh, no, we couldn't possibly get any money back from these big corporations. I think what they should be doing is being like, you know, using this as like textural flavor support for their position. Like, look how cruel these people are, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But not necessarily trying to make it a major policy position to recoup the money from the businesses, even though I, I think mm. that would be good if they could do that, but like, it's not really the biggest issue pressing us right now. Um, and then say, we're going to quadruple job seeker and family assistance or whatever. And like, we aren't going to come after you for this fucking bullshit. Cause we know that welfare is 
people do it as a last resort for the most part. And like, they could say, we're going to be compassionate and supportive and blah, blah, blah. But instead they're just being like, Harvey Norman. And I, yeah, because again, they're not radical enough to actually have a different position. So the critiques that they can make are limited to like, you made a whoopsie. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. I honestly, I don't have a particularly strong position on it one way or the other. I just was like, sort of reading, you know, Andrew Lee getting all, all sort of like knickers in a twist about this, and I was like, I don't know. I just feel like there's potentially more productive ways you could be, more productive stuff you could be talking about, but also more productive ways you could be using this specific thing potentially. But right, right. As you this say, this also reminds know, me of the conversation that we've been having in Ospol shit posting about the like proposed three hundred dollars vaccine hmm. funding, and some people have been being like, well, it might stimulate the economy and it might encourage people to get vaccines, but it's not going to do either of those things as well as a functional welfare and well-funded hospital system. So mm. we shouldn't have this $300 payment. And I think it's that last bit that isn't a logical step there, right? Like, yeah. yes, it's not the most effective way of doing things. Yeah, we could just fund our actual services effect like properly, and then we wouldn't need this. But it's not. That's not an option at this point. And like, no. there's nothing wrong with giving these three hundred dollars. It's not optimal. But like, whatever, you know. I don't know. Yeah, that's. And I feel it's a similar thing or a similar kind of vibe with this job seeker thing in terms of like, is this really an objection yeah, that I mean, holds like, up under scrutiny? Yeah, and be, like you know, the Labour Party, as you say, being hamstrung by the fact that they ultimately are, you know, they do work in favour of capital mm. and that any kind of meaningful progress on dealing with this pandemic or like supporting, you know, marginalized and economically precarious people in our society generally requires like a huge amount of systemic change. And that's just not on the fucking table for those Uh people at all. Uh Um, And so we're kind of sitting there being like, you know, there's a way that you could solve this problem forever. Uh, yeah, and uh, but of course, it's just not in their remit. So yeah, I don't know. I guess there's a, there's a level of disconnect there mm. as well in terms of what seem like very obvious common sense solutions versus like what is even vaguely politically possible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in our like very very stunted and limited political capacity of our like current political system. Anyway, that's probably enough on that. All right. How about we move on now to our um, First Nations story now? Yeah. Um, so before we start, I'm just going to give a heads up. I will use the name of someone who has died. I think it might be a uh, name for a dead person, if you know what I mean, that they get given sort of after they pass away so that people can talk about them. But I'm mm-hmm. not 100% about that, so I, I thought I'd still give this warning up top before we go. Sure. Um but despite that, it is actually a really wonderful and, and, and nice story. Uh, I wanted to do it last week, but of course we took the week off. Um, but uh, last week I went to a talk uh, on Zoom with my housemate uh, from a guy called Dr. Bentley James, who's an anthropologist and linguist. And he's one of the key people behind a series of books aimed at documenting and passing on the culture and language of the Yongnu people who are um, live up in the very northern tip of the Northern Territory and... Um, We've talked about them a number of times because they're a really sort of powerful community with a lot of um, amazing culture that they, you know, show and share with other people and white people and so on. So, you know, share. It's visible in in, in public way, yep. 
So these books are a project that he started with a woman named Bay Moranga, who uh, was a really incredible woman who spoke like a dozen different languages, but not a word of English, apparently. Uh, and she died in 2014 at, a, Dr. James says, about age 100. And she couldn't remember exactly when she was born and there was no one else alive who would know. Um, Wikipedia wow. says that she was 97 when she died, but I trust this guy who worked with her for decades ahead of the wiki article. Um, yep. And so amongst other stuff, she she organized this thing called the Crocodile Islands Initiative, which was basically a series of projects that would be able to attract government support to pay young new people to stay on country and to work on country. So things like ranger programs, uh, you know, like cleaning up uh, tourism stuff, um, multilingual schools, a bunch of other really amazing things. And again, she didn't speak any fucking English. So she was doing all of this entirely self-directed and like outside the system in various ways. And of course, I'm sure she had people who translated and interpreted and so on. But yeah. Yeah. Um, and so Baymoranga also collaborated with this guy, Bentley James, to create this series of books. And the first one was an illustrated trilingual book called the Yanangu Atlas, an illustrated dictionary of the Crocodile Islands. And so that's written in Yanangu, Yongnumata, and English. And so Yongnu, the Yongnu people is sort of a big group. Um, and within that, there's a subgroup. Oh, sorry, and they all speak Yongnumata, which is kind of like the lingua franca of the Yongnu people. And then sure. within that, there was this uh, tribe or clan that this woman, Baymuranga, was a member of, uh, and they spoke Yanangu. And so this atlas is this incredible, hand-painted, all of the things in it are stunningly beautiful. And all of these books that I'm going to talk about, can't like go look up some pictures of it because they are incredible and so yeah it's it's got all of the terms in yanangu yongnu and uh sorry yongnu mata and english for all of these mm. different places and um i'll just read a quote from michael dodson who wrote the the foreword uh it is rare that i get the opportunity to write the foreword for a book that is both a part of history and a history in the making the Yanangu Atlas is such a text representing a collation of the songs, stories, cosmologies, and deep ecological knowledge of the Crocodile Islands spanning countless eons. This is a history captured in a language, language that's rich with links to ceremonial and magical sites, to ancient patterns of maritime travel, to a reservoir of knowledge about natural resources tested by time. And so I think that, I thought that quote was useful because it it's not an atlas just just an atlas in sort of the like western sense it has yeah. all of this knowledge and song and language and culture in it yeah because that's so what cool. the land is and when you make a book about the land you have to make it about all of these things yeah yeah and so another book that they made was a guide to shellfish um in that area and so that's also trilingual in yongnumata english and the latin name so that's cool um, and the final one, which is this, what this talk was about and was the reason that I went, which was about, a, it was a dictionary slash learning guide to Yongnu Sign Language. Um, and so again, this book is incredibly beautiful. Just amazing photographs, mostly of really, really, really old people. A lot of them are of Bemaranga, but there's other people in it as well. And Dr. James says that basically all three books were created of him traveling around with Baymaranga as she went around the Crocodile Islands following the song lines and the way her family lived when she was young. And she mm. would, like, bump into people, basically, on the way and, like, talk to them. And um, he would make notes and they would, yeah, record it together. And there was so much stuff. And obviously, this was, like, an hour-long talk and it's a, like, thick tome of a book. 
Um, but he said that, yeah, he showed us these amazing diagrams and he joked something like, uh, you know, I've spent 10 years looking at these uh, and I'm not sure what they're saying. So I'm not expecting you to get in the next 15 minutes. Um, but uh, I think what they were showing was geographical locations of ancestors and sacred sites and the way that those locations correlated with both language distribution and genetic distribution. So it was a series of these maps that kind of had overlapping information sort of recorded on them. Right. Um, and again, 15 minutes, I don't know. But so these multiple overlapping language groups, the physical distance away from the sacred sites also would tell you what songs they sang and who their song skin groups were related to. And that all of these correlations were confirmed by modern genetic testing of, you know, bones that were found in that area. And Mm -hmm. so they can basically show that the people who are living there now are extremely closely related to the people who were living there 50,000 years ago, but in proportion to the distance away from the sacred sites. Anyway, that's just one, like, teaser of the kind of, like, depth and complexity of the sort of analysis they were doing. But. I want to talk a little bit about Yongnu Sign Language. Sorry, I'm just ranting. I, I really love this talk, and I'm very excited to talk about it. So, excuse me, ranting at you. So, Yongnu Sign Language, um, it's what's called an alternate sign language or an auxiliary sign language. So, um, Auslan, which is the Australian sign language, um, which it's a primary sign language, which means it's like it's a full language, and you can use it for everything. Um Whereas YSL, Yongnu Sign Language, is an alternate sign language, which means it's not for use in every situation. It's for specific cultural and economic purposes, or at least that's what uh, Dr. James said. Gotcha. He would know. Um, So one example that I'm not 100% sure actually is with Yongnu, but it's true of many other First Nations people and languages, uh, and it might be about Yongnu, so listeners, if you know, please let me know. But there's a taboo of, of talking to various kin relations, and I learned in my undergrad that it was mothers-in-law, but I imagine it's at least a bit more complicated than that. But basically, to avoid talking to your mother-in-law, you can sign. And so that avoids this taboo, but you can still communicate when you need to. Um, and so that's one cultural reason. And an economic reason that Bentley James gave was about, you know, um, going to the river to try to... Uh, organize something to eat as it were there's a complete ban on speaking aloud at the river when you're doing that thing and an even more strong absolute really total ban about speaking about that activity because if you were going to go and do that thing uh at the river the and you announced your plans to do so the ancestors would rip a hole in the net and everything would get out and so they have this sort of like technical jargon sign language to use in those situations where they're not able to speak out loud, but they need to be able to communicate about what they're doing and what the, what the process is. Yeah. And so this Yongnu Sign Dictionary is another absolutely breathtakingly beautiful record and learning resource of the language. Um, and there were, there were also deaf people who grew up in Yongnu, and they tended to be able to communicate with everyone using YSL. So that means it must have been reasonably complex and functional beyond the jargon that you might need to know about nets and rivers and so on sure. um and one example of that sorry i'm, I'm, I'm nearly finished i'm just yeah so much good shit uh but uh another thing bentley said uh that was so wonderful about going around with bay Moranga was that linguists had collected quite a few literal signs from Gyeongnu sign language like the sign for hill um and the sign for darling but when he traveled with bay Moranga, he saw her talking with people 
sort of having full conversations with them. And so he started seeing idiomatic signs. So hill and darling together means thank you, which is a much more like complex thing for an auxiliary language to do, right? It's not just like, let's go to the hill, be quiet because there's kangaroos or whatever. It's like, that's just a conversational idiom that you need to be able to have. Um, And Mm. so it shows that it was actually, the sign language was deeply incorporated into daily life for essentially everyone in the community. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that's That's really interesting. It was such a good talk um, and it was interpreted in Auslan. Um, and so I th- they were planning on uploading it, but I don't know if that's happened yet. So uh, if I find that, I'll post it on all of our social media. And if it's uh, before the episode goes live, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but I just really want to encourage listeners to go and have a look at some of these resources. Um, unfortunately, the books I've mentioned are all devastatingly expensive, but they're also like incredible works of art and um they the money also goes to providing free copies of these books to primary and high schools mainly in Yongnu. um so it goes directly to providing children with another way of accessing language and culture mm-hmm. um so it's not only a book for you but it's a book for the Yongnu people uh, but yeah so the sign language handbook is 250 dollars um the atlas i would really love to flick through but it's 1500 dollars um wow. and the the shellfish book i think is 750 but yeah so if it, if you listener have a spare couple of hundred bucks lying around like this would be a wonderful thing to buy for yourself or for a local library or a primary school or something um yeah so i, I don't know i'm not sure many of our listeners do have that kind of money but um <laughs> Yeah, something to consider. Anyway, yeah, that's the end of my uh, First Nations story. Um, it, it just really, yeah, really blew me away. And um, maybe I'll post some pictures of the, the book in our Discord. Cause, um, of the, yeah, of the I'd love to book. see some images of it. That would yeah. be fantastic. Thanks for that, New. No worries. Uh, now it's time for... Positivity so yeah, because we were off last week, uh, we didn't really talk about one of the worst fucking things <laughs> that has happened in politics this year. But um, uh, Christian Porter was mm, temporarily sweet. promoted to leader of the house uh, last week because um, Morrison was away and Peter Dutton was in quarantine. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, right? Is that what it was? It was a, it was always yeah. temporary, right? I mean, it's still a bad fucking choice, but like, uh, I didn't realize he was stepping up for a minute. I thought they had just given him the gig. No, I'm pretty sure it's just, uh, it's, it's, yeah, he's acting. Literally I mean, it's still house. fucking gross. Yeah, I mean, it's still. This is an active and intentional and like yep. brutal demonstration of yep. the. The misogyny of our government and of our prime minister specifically. 100%. Um, So that was fucking awful. Uh, This week, uh, it's been nice to see that there's been a couple of bits of good news that will actually have a positive impact for women. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first one I wanted to talk about was that safe access zones around abortion clinics have been established in Western Australia, which is really great. So that means that no protesting will be allowed within 150 meters of abortion (laughs) clinics. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I'm sure that most people are familiar with what those protests would look like, but essentially there are clusters of Christians outside these abortion clinics who harass uh, people go- who are going in to get an abortion, telling them that they are... Or the staff who uh, work there. And the staff or the partners of the people yeah, who yeah. Uh, 
you know, helping their partner go to the clinic, you know, and basically telling people that, you know, they're murderers for getting an abortion um, or giving them little uh, show bags with a, a single starburst chew and a whole bunch of like conservative Christian literature inside. Right. Anyway, Western Australia was the last state in Australia to enact right. safe access zone laws, which means that this is now nationwide, which is really mm-hmm. great. Um, going to get an abortion is already hard enough mm-hmm. <laughs> without fucking religious extremists calling you a murderer. So this is great. And it's, and it's the result of, you know, community campaigning from many groups. Mm-hmm. Um, one who the ABC singled out was Western Australians for safe As- access zones, which was started by uh, a mum who was harassed on her way to get an abortion. Um, and she was like, Oh, well this is fucked. That sucks. And then, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, started this group who've been instrumental in, um, getting that, uh, Cool. Uh, that legal change. Um, and it is positive, but also while we're here, we do have to say a big massive fuck you to the three pieces of shit in the Western Australian upper house who voted against this. Mm-hmm. Liberals Nick Goyron. Fucking he deserves that name. Kicking yeah. kicking the, the Goyron, if you ask me. And Neil Thompson. And also uh, James Haywood, who's a national. So fuck you guys. You yeah. suck. Get the fuck out um, of here. Yeah, get the fuck out of here. Uh, and yeah, next up, full decriminalization of abortion, massive yeah. expansion of access for everybody who yep. needs it across the country because even though it's technically legal in a lot of places, it's, you know... Very inaccessible and... Yep. Yeah, yep. prohibitively inaccessible for many cases, in mm-hmm. many cases. So, you know, the fight continues. But anyway, speaking of uh, decriminalization, sex work uh, is also going to be decriminalized in Victoria. And to quote a press release from the Victorian government, sex work will be decriminalized in Victoria, ensuring sex workers have access to the same rights as any other Victorian employee, regardless of who they work for themselves, a small employer, a small employer or a large company. Decriminalization recognizes that sex work is legitimate work and should be regulated through standard business laws like all other industries in the state. Totally. I had a chat with a friend of mine um, who's, in the industry or has been um and they were saying that yeah some of the issues that this might deal with and they they were basically like look it's a good start and we don't yeah. know what the actual impact is going to be but one of the things they said was like uh strippers for example and probably re- replies to you know full service sex workers and so on as well but um if they you know fall and break an ankle it's almost impossible to get work cover um, mm. or that sort of thing, like insurance for sex and just like public indemnity insurance, right? Like not even like stuff specifically related to the industry. You just can't get it. And of course, something that we've talked about before is about, um, the ability to go to police or yep. try and get other sort of systemic justice. Um, if you, if people say they're a sex worker, they're often just like, told that the cops aren't going to do anything. And yeah. yeah. And or they might be, criminalized like, yes exactly they the might spot. be charged yeah 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 100 yeah. percent. um so yes uh we don't know what it's going to do exactly but it seems like a really good step in the right direction yeah also i mean it follows the decriminalization of sex work in new south wales in 1995 right. and right. also um well, it's in, been northern that long territory. in new south wales gosh yeah and also in the northern territory in 2019 so you know the sky didn't fall in in either of those places yeah um yeah. and yeah i mean this as you say noon like there's all kinds of extraordinarily specific stuff this will affect that you probably wouldn't have any idea about if you're not in the industry. Um, 
but also, you know, at a very basic level, it's like, this is uh, really positive because it makes uh, sex work much safer. And it's going to massively yeah. reduce the risk of criminalization for sex workers. And on a very basic, you know, <laughs> basic level, gives sex workers much more autonomy. You, mm -hmm. know, uh, um, you know, they're not literally, you know... <laughs> like made to be criminals because of their profession. It's just, mm -hmm. it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so this is, uh, a re what is, what's actually happening on a, on a legal level is, um, this is repealing the Victorian sex work act from 1994. So these right. laws are 30 years old, yeah. you know, almost, and they haven't been, um, updated since then. Right. And what that, um, that act did was they introduced licensing laws for sex workers and sex industry mm -hmm. workplaces and outlawed street-based sex work. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. according to Scarlet Alliance, which is the peak body for sex workers in Australia, licensing does not support sex worker rights, privacy, or workplace health and safety. It is not decriminalization. Licensing is sometimes incorrectly referred to as legalization, mm. which I thought was an interesting... You know, yeah. a lot of these conversations are kind of around, oh, is legalization or decriminalization? Like, what's the right, difference right, between right. those approaches? And, uh, you know, that Scarlet Alliance is like, yeah, it's not really legalization. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, but basically you're putting the, the job of regulating the industry in the hands of the cops instead right, of right. Uh, government agencies, as is the case with other industries. The Victorian yeah. government put it, yeah. literally every other industry in the state. Mm -hmm. So that's you know really on on the ground that's going to be kind of what the uh that's what the the, the sort of change bureaucratic change like. around mm -hmm. this yeah mm -hmm. it's going to you know the industry will now be regulated by government agencies and regulators um so as you say noon this is like i think can be regarded as a really good start mm -hmm. um you know i think that we can say that unequivocally that this is a progressive policy and that it's going to make life easier for sex workers but obviously it's not, you know, it's definitely not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. um, I have a quote here from uh, the CEO of Scarlet Alliance, Jules Kim. Too often we have seen the needs of most marginalized sex workers sidelined in processes to, to decriminalize sex work. All sex workers must be empowered with the same choices and enabled to work in the ways that best support our health and safety. We hope that the government will stick to their commitment to fully decriminalize sex work for all of us. The evidence and support for decriminalization is unequivocal, and it is great that the Victorian government has heard the voices of sex workers in moving forward these much-needed reforms. So I think that there's one of the major concerns that's kind of being hinted at there is that there are still, like, federal laws that criminalize mm -hmm. migrant sex workers, for example. Right, okay. Um, so the, it's kind of, you know, it's legally complicated, um, and I think what uh, Jules Kim is getting at there is that, you know, the implementation of this decriminalization needs to make sure that, mm -hmm. you know, the most marginalized among the sex worker uh, industry are also kind of protected and, um, you know, and decriminalized uh, in the same way. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, there, there's yeah. still, it, it remains to be seen, uh, as you say, exactly how it's all going to play out. Um, but this is a good result. It's the result yeah, of decades of campaigning by sex workers uh, including Scarlet Alliance, who I've mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, and also Vixen Collective, which is a peer-only sex worker organization, meaning that they, you know, you can only be a member if you're a current or former sex worker. Um, so, you know, a fucking amazing <laughs> job to those orgs yeah, totally. and the sex workers who fought for this. Um, and one last thing I'll say on this is that the Victorian government is also doing a public consultation around this, which closes 
uh, in about two weeks. So uh, if you are a sex worker, an ally of a sex worker, or just, you know, want to uh, voice your support for these reforms, you can do that on the Victorian government website. We'll put a link to that um, in the show notes. And yeah, I looked at the survey and was like, I really want to respond to this, but I'm going to need to do quite a bit more reading before I'm able to like uh, give meaningful responses to these questions. So uh, it's maybe a good opportunity uh, to do Mm -hmm. that and educate oneself. And on that, um, Scarlet Alliance has a bunch of really good resources on their website um, that uh, explain, you know, what decriminalization of sex work is and what it isn't. Uh, and you know, what are the kind of concerns that face sex workers on a day-to-day basis? So, mm-hmm. um, as well as a bunch of really good press releases, like around, you know, this and the decriminalization of sex work in Northern territory as well. So I would direct people there as a really good first place yeah, to like start reading up about this. Uh, yeah, those are two unequivocally good stories. I think nice to have a little bit of positivity in, in Hell your yeah. news podcast every once in a while. What a nice way to end the, the week's news. That's but right. Now that the it, news is over, is that what you were going to say? Yeah, it's business time. Yeah. <laughs> if you want a podcast, you gotta do a lot of shit. If it's not technically podcasting, you still gotta do that shit. Yeah, that's right. This is the business section where we say thank you so much for following us. And if you don't, then please go to our social media. We got Facebook. We got Instagram. We got Twitter. We got anything else. Uh, LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> follow us on Hoobble. Make sure to sign up to our blank WeChat. Account. Yeah, we. Uh, yeah, follow us on WeChat. I will say actually, MySpace. We are at seven hundred and ninety-eight followers on Twitter right now. If you wanted to, if you wanted to tip us over into eight hundred, I wouldn't say no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't complain. I think neither neither Noon or I would complain about that. No, and neither of us would complain either. If you went over to patreon.com forward slash Ozpol Snackpot and gave us a dollar, and then you can come hang out with us on Disco, and you'll see the photos of the 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 Yongnu sign handbook that I'm going to post in the next couple hours, and you can see some of the tasty food that we eat and the movies that we watch. Not just us, but like other people in our Discord. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> The other thing that we would love it if you would do is go and give a one-star review to Tony Abbott's new podcast, which I believe is called Australia's Heartland, although I can't remember. But also, if while you don't you're want doing to do that, that. <laughs> you could also give us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts, which yeah. really helps. And we did get a couple of new reviews over the last two weeks, so I'm going to read one out now. Great. This is five stars, five-star review from Tilda Joy, two Thanks, Tilda. total sweethearts. Oh. These boys are just really good, and I'm not just saying that because of my outsized influence on the podcast and frequent name drops, but I'm sure it didn't hurt. A well-oiled <laughs> good take machine, which is... Nice. I'm fucking... Yeah. We're, I'm going to use that one. Great part is in crime with the trans community. Solidarity. There was an episode a little while back called Weed Brownies or something that they could have easily called Transgender Flavor Aid, but uh, let's let bygones be bygones. We all have room to improve and grow. <laughs> we are doing our best to improve and grow children we'll take that on board yeah and uh, i'm honestly shocked and appalled that we missed that opportunity as well but um hey we'll get them next time all right uh, here's another awesome review um i've never been to australia why am i listening to this five stars uh from <laughs> great question and sewers uh so i'm from germany i've lived in ireland and i visited aotearoa slash new zealand close enough but i've never been to australia and i think i might never go there 
But there are several reasons why this has become one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> the way the podcast starts off each episode with an acknowledgement and a constant reminder of the history and ongoing effect of settler colonialism is so important and yet very rare in politics or media. But it's more than just paying lip service to an idea. The two hosts manage to effortlessly convey and reassert their commitment to include and platform indigenous and other subaltern perspectives. Subaltern? Offering yeah. a nuanced and critical left humanist perspective on politics that is rare and yet relatable. Needless to say, listening to the podcast is a lot of fun, even if it's not always funny and it doesn't try to be. Thanks for keeping up the good fight and solidarity <laughs> from the other side of this weird planet. Oh, thank you so much. That's a really sweet and um, earnest review. So, yeah, uh, thank you. That's, that is really that's sweet. Kind. I like the caveat that even though majority of the time we're not funny, we're also not trying to be, which is potentially generous. But, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Subaltern, meaning of inferior rank, is a term adopted by Antonio Gramsci to refer uh, to those working class people in the Soviet Union who are subject to the hegemony of the ruling classes. Good Subaltern classes may include peasants, workers, peasants, and other groups yeah. denied access to hegemonic power, mm -hmm. such as podcast listeners. Um, and uh, we did have one other really lovely review, which, uh, which I'll read out. This one is five stars, and it's from Gary from Accounting, who says, I like when stuff that's good for you actually tastes nice too. I listen to a lot of Ozpol podcasts. Don't worry, I hate me for typing that too. <laughs> this one ticks all the boxes. It's interesting, funny, and genuinely informative. I never finish an episode without feeling like it's provided something different and valuable, whether that's a deep dive into a topic that hasn't been given the coverage it deserves, analysis of how major news outlets are framing or resisting framing the information they present, or just actually being able to articulate a take I've been cold brewing in my mind for a while and trying to find the right words for it. Snackpod boys don't just do a great job of making your veggies palatable, they also introduce you to new and exciting things like okra. <laughs> and like okra, your meals are more filling and well-rounded for its inclusion. <laughs> this food metaphor is falling down, and I don't even like okra, so I'll stop. Thanks for the pod. I look forward to it every week. Thank you very much, Gary, for encountering. Thank you. I just also don't like okra. Chop them in half. A little bit of olive oil. Not too much. Just a little bit. A little bit of soy sauce. A little bit of grated ginger. In the grill. Five ten minutes. The, the, the most important thing is right, to, okay. under no circumstances, let it get near water. You don't want to boil. Yeah, the okay. that's, I that's guess where I'm people just, go wrong. I think you want a nice crispy only, little. The only uh, circumstance under which I've eaten it. It was like discovering the Brussels sprouts are actually fucking delicious. You just right. need to grill That's them so roast good. Them. You just got to yeah. grill them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just um, lemon and salt. Off you go. Listen, before hell. we finish up, uh, we've never had to do this before, but. Um, I just want to briefly enter the P zone, the, the plug zone, where I plug my pluggables. <laughs> uh, and specifically, I've been streaming on Twitch. The P zone! I got it from Robert Evans. It's not a, it's not a noon original. The, the plug zone. All right, now I guess I have to play Sophie. God yeah. damn it. Yeah. How's that? Uh, Hitler? Yeah. Um, uh, I've been, well, speaking of Hitler, I've been streaming games on Twitch, <laughs> twitch.com forward slash noonplacegames. Uh, probably I'm going to be doing like Sunday to Wednesday for the foreseeable future. Um, I just hit partner so you can now tip me money on Twitch, but no, just come and watch me play games. Um, and on Fridays, read a little bit of uh, political theory and philosophy uh, before I play games. So if that sounds fun, you want a little bit of extra noon monologuing in your life, go follow me on Twitch. Have Who you got anything extra noon to plug in the P-Zone, Zach? No, I don't have anything to plug, but... Now it's time for a pub game! Um, 
Yeah, had a real uh, hell weekend with Dante last weekend. It's like I took the podcast off my plate and then the universe was like, oh, I see you've got all this extra roux on your plate. How about I make your dog really fuck up the next couple of days for you? Perfect. So the first thing that happened was Dante got into the compost while Holly and I were out. (laughs) Then he vomited a a minimum of four times on a carpet that Holly had recently bought. Uh, it was like the first like nice thing she'd bought for the house so then she was like yeah okay i'm not dealing with this guy for the next like couple of days just like you know (laughs) have my fill and the next day so it was all on you yeah exactly so the next day i was uh wrestling with dante and then i noticed that he had snapped his claw and his claw was hanging at a right angle i don't know when or how it happened i think when we were out of the house it didn't seem to be bothering him but as soon as i touched it he was like like, yeah totally yeah and so, and our car is at the mechanics at the moment, so we didn't have a car, so I had to call a friend of the show, Lewis, who came and picked me up, and then we put Dante in the car, and Dante hates cars, and he was screaming right, the whole time, right. freaking out, his paws in pain. I get him to the vet, he start, he freaks the fuck out of the vet, uh-huh. because he's, like, being like uh, so yep. dramatic about his paw, and, like, anyway, so she snips off the, the bit of claw that's hanging off, and... He like loses his shit completely. I've got him in a I've got him in a half Nelson on the floor of the vet, like no. <laughs> gotta put him in this fucking like yeah, I'm yeah, using my legs one, and arms to like yep, full yep. body restraint. Keep him there. Yeah. 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 And the vet was like, anything else? And I was like, No, no, that's it. And she was like, Okay, cool, it's hundred and eighty five dollars. I was like, Perfect. sick, great. Love that for a one snip of a turnout. Yes, yep. exactly. And then get Dante home, and I wake up the next morning, and he's got goo running out of his eyes. He's, he's contracted fucking conjunctivitis. And I was like, you couldn't have presented with this, you know, 10 hours, hours ago? ago? <laughs> Save me a fucking vet visit? Yep. Anyway, ended up not taking him back to the vet. We ordered some hippie drops, hippie eye drops. Right. Um, um, yeah, I mean, Bales had conjunctivitis before. It was, it was a symptom of kennel croup, I think. Um, and mm. they were just like, eh. Just leave it. it. Should go. Have you? Has Dante ever had kennel croup? It's fucking scary. It sounds no, like he's got whooping so. cough. And... Oh jeez. Yeah. Oh, was, no. when, the first time Bagel did it, I was like, oh well, he's about to die. Um, but then it's just like a really, really common, harmless disease, or mostly harmless disease. All anyway, oh, right. Yeah. No, hadn't heard of it. Luckily, Dante hasn't had it yet. But uh... <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I mean, I feel like it, you know, he did. He he's like. He's done his sick time this week, this month, hopefully. Fingers yeah, crossed. Yeah, touching some wood there. Yeah, Bagel's been all right. Um, we've got another new new, new housemate. Our new housemate moved out, and another new housemate's moved in. Um, they're fabulous. They're, um, actually, Auslan's their first language, so we've been signing. And Bagel has been very confused about why everyone's sitting silently in the backyard moving their hands around. <laughs> and it's a very particular type of alarm that it's the same one as if people hug. I don't know if Dante minds people hugging, but mm. Bagel is like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? I need to, hey, 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 I'm in charge of all physical contact, and you two, I'm not sure about that. I don't get... remember approving this. Now, if Dante sees a hug, he's like, um, where's my invitation? And just yeah. jumps and needs to get involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing that Bagel hates is people picking lemons from the lemon tree. And it's the same distress of people doing Auslan. And I think it's just like, something a bit funny is happening. I don't know what it is. Yes. And I need you to stop it right fucking now. But anyway, yeah. So <laughs> I've just been sit- practicing just like sitting in my room and signing silently and trying to like get Bagel, 
used, used to seeing to, it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. That's there it. That's the whole that's the whole update. Couple of bad boys getting up to cheeky stuff. Shriek hounds all around. As is to be expected. Alright, well Alright. That's uh that'll probably do us for this this week. Thank you very much for yep. for for sticking with us, even though we talk so much shit. Um, you know, I still feel like we're we're finding out podcasting sea legs a little bit. Um after being off for a week. Marine submarine legs. legs. Yeah. yeah. Nice one. Um <laughs> But uh we'll we'll be back next week. We'll be back on that horse. Mix another metaphor for you up. And uh until then, make sure you keep on snacking in the free world. Fuck Met Canavan, crunch crunch.